Hey, good afternoon, everybody. I knew I was going to say it right for the first time in like five weeks, so I'm excited. It's going to be a good day. I can tell. <laughs> uh, my name is Eric. I just want to welcome everyone who is in the room today. also want to welcome all of you that are watching online or you're uh, watching or listening to this later on in the week. So my job is to talk through uh, some info for all of us here today. And if, if you are online, or again, if you're watching or listening later, a few of these items might not apply to you. Uh, but anything that I say, you can check out on our website website. A lot of them uh, can happen through our website. Uh, now, we would love for you to share your information with us, and there's a few reasons why. Uh, we're not going to try to scam you or, or try to sell you anything like that. Uh, we just want you to be updated because there are a lot of exciting things happening in the life of our church. And at Center Way, we absolutely love this time of year. The holidays are filled with a lot of exciting things, and we don't want you to miss out. And so uh, we love for you, if you are a guest, by the way, very special welcome to you today. Uh, but we would love to get your information so that you're in the loop. Also, we'd like to get information uh, so that we can follow up with you and we can also get feedback from you. We are still uh, a young church plant and would love any feedback that you may have uh, for us. Now, there are two ways for you to share your information. Uh, the first of which is an info card. Uh, that's a physical card that's in the, the back of the room. You can fill out and uh, hand in the offering box in just a second. Or you could also fill out an electronic card through an app called Uversion. The instructions to fill that out uh, are up on the screen. That app is really, really useful. Love for you to check that out, even if you aren't interested in sharing your information, uh, because a few things happen on there. You can follow along. You can take notes through the app. You can even give financially uh, if you're so inclined. Now, speaking of giving, you can do that through our website, but you can also do that uh, through an offering box in the back uh, if you're here, uh, if you'd like to give that way. Now, there are so many ways to engage with Centerway throughout the week. We do have wallpapers for your phone or tablet, uh, social media that gets updated throughout the week, a Spotify playlist, the Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotion. There's a, a bunch of ways to do that. You can visit the messages page of the website to access those resources. Now, if you need prayer, if you have questions about who we are, if you have feedback, like I mentioned before, or just ideas uh, to, to uh, make our church better, then um, you can email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. We would love to hear from you that way. Um, we believe in next steps here at Centerway. We believe in taking steps in the right direction. They don't have to be speedy. <laughs> you can go at your own pace, but we always believe in taking the next step. And so... Uh, if you are here and looking for ways to grow, uh, to, to serve, to be spiritually coached, to get water baptized, to become a Centerway student, uh, you can check out the Next Steps booth uh, in the lobby after our gathering today. Or uh, you could also check out the Next Steps tab of our website. A reminder that we're offering complimentary uh, photo mini sessions for you and uh, for our community. If you'd like to have a free session with our absolutely incredible photographers, uh, please um, visit our website and share with your family and friends. We really do uh, desire this to be an outreach to uh, your families, to our community, anybody that you know. Now, there's cards available uh, in the back um, near the offering box and in the cafe for you to hand out. If you're a paper kind of person and want to physically hand out a copy uh, to your family and friends, that would be great as well, but make sure that is on your radar. Now, here's what to expect for the rest of our gathering today. Mike is going to come and read scripture for us. Then Claude is going to communicate from the Bible, and then later we'll, we'll respond to the word uh, through song. You excited for today? 
Man, I am. I'm, there's something in the air I'm really, really excited about. Uh, let's bow our heads and hearts and prepare them for what God has for us today. Lord, we are so thankful so thankful that you've called us to meet you in this place. Lord, we're thankful even for the changing seasons because we're reminded that in every season you are faithful. Lord, you desire to show your faithfulness through your word, through your spirit, and we pray today that we would sense that, Lord God. Well, Father, if we've walked into this place excited or heartbroken or anywhere in between, I ask, Lord God, that your faithfulness would be experienced in a fresh and a new way. Lord, uh, open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our hearts to what you want to do and we pray it all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks, Hey, everyone. I'm Mike, and uh, I'll be reading today's scripture. Um, it's Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lima Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Sal Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was, saw where he was laid. Thanks so much, Mike. So we're continuing uh, in our series and our journey through Mark uh, the book of Mark, Gospel According to Mark, and um, the series that we're continuing in is entitled um, Within Walking Distance, and today's message is specifically entitled God. God is within walking distance. Um, I, uh, I have never gone hunting to the degree where I had even had an opportunity to kill anything. I know that there's mixed people in the room and watching online or listening, and some of you are like avid, committed hunters, and others of you are like, why would you ever kill anything? And all on the spectrum of everywhere, and I'm not disparaging anyone, um, 
I've never been given the opportunity to see whether or not I'm able to kill anything. Um, I've been very limited times. Uh, and as a kid, uh, I was somewhere around the age of 12, I believe, that I went uh, with my dad. And it was during um, bow season, um, so hunting bow and arrow. And uh, we were meeting up with one of his friends that was an avid hunter, and we were uh, like scouting where it is that he would hunt, and my dad was a hunter. And so we went into the woods, and we're going along, and we're looking for tracks and all the things that, that you do that I still don't really understand because I really don't consider myself a hunter. But in either case, we're going through the woods, and sure enough, we come in contact with uh, this friend of my father's who told him to meet at a specific place. And as we get closer, he's kind of squatted down. He's going, shh, shh. He's going like that, and so we're like, oh, okay. So we come up to the area that he's sitting and um, he's whispering super quiet and he's like, you know, we're downwind so we can't be smelled by the deer but there's one in the distance and I'm waiting for him to come right in this clearing. And so we're like, all right, so we're sitting there watching and sure enough, we hear some rustling and this deer starts to meander out in the, in the distance and it's coming a little closer and uh, I can't help but notice that the way we're facing is kind of, open, although the deer is kind of in a, in a thicket. But to our right, there is a clearing, but right between us and the clearing are a bunch of like birch trees, like those white trees, if you don't know what a birch tree is. And so I say, what about the, the birch trees? And he's like, Shh, quiet, quiet. I'm like, okay. I don't know what I'm doing. So, all right, we're going to watch this. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to watch somebody kill Bambi's dad. And so we're sitting out there and we're watching and this deer starts to come out of this thicket and into this clearing and all of a sudden it comes out and just a puff of steam off of it and everything as it's kind of walking out into this clearing. It was pretty impressive and majestic. I had never really been that close to a living animal of that stature or anything besides maybe a horse. And uh, I'm sitting there looking at this deer and it starts to kind of walk away. And as it walks away... This guy pulls back his bow, and as he pulls back his bow, he snorts and goes, or something along those lines. And when he does, this deer like stops and turns, which is exactly what he was trying to manipulate it into doing so he could shoot it. And so it stops and turns and looks right at it. And sure enough, pulls back this bow and goes, and let's go. And I'm looking. And literally, as he lets it go, we hear, and this this arrow hits a tree about four inches in diameter, about six feet in front of him. Just right into a birch tree. Boom. And the deer jumps and then just runs off. And he's like shaking. He's like, did you see the size of that deer? He's like, how did I not see that tree? I'm like, I kind of saw the tree. He's like, quiet. I can't believe we didn't see the trees. I was like, I saw the trees. We saw the trees. Like he didn't see the trees. You know, he had kind of that tunnel vision. I guess it's a thing that can happen to, to hunters. And I guess it can happen even more so when it comes to bow and arrow, because there's so many things that can redirect this arrow. But this thing, I mean, <laughs> he hit the tree. And of course, I was just a 12 year old kind of, you know, entertaining myself. And so I'm like, hey, good news, man. You hit that tree dead center. My dad's like, shh. I'm like, right, he's still armed, right? So we have to be nice. But in either case, he, he was so focused on this deer. He had such tunnel vision on this deer that he hadn't considered. It was like he was blind to the surroundings. So the question I want to ask as we move into the text today is this. Why is it sometimes difficult to see what's obvious? 
Why is it sometimes difficult to see what's obvious? I want to submit to you that as humans, it's sometimes difficult to see what's obvious because we're blinded by our own narrative. We're blinded by our own narrative. Think about that for a second. We get so wrapped up in, in our narrative, in our story, in the story that we're telling ourselves, the way we envision something playing out, our perceptions, our preconceived ideas. And it, and it becomes so ingrained in what it is that we're doing that it's difficult and sometimes, I would even argue, seemingly impossible to see what's in fact obvious happening right before us, a tree <laughs> six feet away. Now, that may not seem super profound, but I want to tell you what might be more profound than we want to admit. And that's that for a lot of us, some of us in this room and listening, watching later, as I'm saying this, just now, just now as I was saying that, you thought of someone else's inability to see what's obvious. You sat there like, so right. It's like they just can't see it. They can't see what is so obvious. I mean, they're so wrapped up in their own narrative. You know, I wish they were here today because they're totally blind to the obvious, those poor suckers. The truth is we're so wrapped up in our own narrative that we think that that message is for someone else. But it's for all of us. As humans, as humans, we rarely consider our own blind spots. You've heard the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. Right? We see things way more clearly after the fact. It's like afterwards, like, oh my gosh, that's so obvious. How did I not see that? How did I not know it? Man, if I could go back and do that again, right? But in the moment, it's difficult to see what's obvious. Now, as readers of scripture, we've been journeying through Mark, as I already mentioned. And as we look back on kind of this account, it's so obvious to us. I mean, week after week, if you've been journeying with us for, for literal months, we look and we see how in the world are people not connecting the dots? How do they not see that this is the Messiah, that he is Jesus, the son of God? They're completely missing it. We're able to look back and say, how in the world are they missing it? They just can't seem to connect the dots. Why is it? Why is it that they're missing it? Here's why. It might be because the disruptive truth of the gospel doesn't fit into their self-centered narrative. They're so focused on what they want from Jesus that they can't see who Jesus is. They're so focused on, on what they want and what Jesus is kind of interrupting or messing up, right? We have this whole religious crew that's looking at Jesus and they're so upset that he's disrupting their life that he can't, they can't see who he actually is. The disciples themselves want Jesus to be a certain type of person. They want to rule alongside him as he goes into Jerusalem from their perspective. So they're so wrapped up in their own narratives of what they want from God, what they need from God, that they can't see who in fact he is. Sounds kind of familiar, right? We're so wrapped up in our own narrative that often we can't see what it is that, that's happening before us. It just, it doesn't fit into our self-centered narrative. Let's look and see what it is that we can learn today from the text as we kind of consider what was obvious to them and maybe what should be obvious to us. Verse 33 picks up and says this, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now that may seem like a 
a pretty, you know, basic statement of scripture, but based on the way that they told time then, the sixth hour was actually what we would refer to as noon. And so you can figure it out if you take your shoes off, use your toes, or however you need to count. Uh, The ninth hour would then be, yes, 3 p.m. So that means that from noon until 3 p.m., there was, as the text says, darkness over the whole land. I had a a friend that I attempted to share my faith with. Um, His name was Scott. And he had a thought about this whole thing as we were just discussing different things. He had some preconceived ideas about um, what it was to follow Jesus, who Jesus was, who Jesus wasn't. And um, he said, you know what? He goes, I don't understand why they make such a big deal. Like, oh, it was so dark. He goes, it's clearly just a solar eclipse. And so it caused me to do a little bit of investigating that I want to share with you today. Um, A solar eclipse actually causes darkness for just a couple minutes. Now, you could argue that there's like a progression of darkness um, as those couple minutes take place, but it's definitely not ours. And beyond that, even if you just said, oh, okay, that variation of darkness could be attributed to a solar eclipse, solar eclipses happen during what's called a new moon. Now, you can thank Scott for this because he made me investigate all of it. (laughs) A new moon, for those of you that that skipped that day in uh, science, a new moon is when the moon is between the earth and the sun, okay? That's how, so the earth, sun, the moon moves between, and as a result, it blocks out the sun, a solar eclipse. Okay, so what? Why does that matter? (laughs) Well, Jesus dies during Passover. So he's being crucified during Passover, which we know from scripture and history that not only was Jesus taking place, uh, sorry, Jesus' crucifixion was taking place, but that Passover happens during a certain time of year, then and now. And during that time, it begins with what's called a full moon. So there's a difference between a full moon and a new moon. I won't go into too much detail, except to say that during a full moon, there could be possibly a lunar eclipse. But a lunar eclipse obviously would not cause darkness during the day. So it's literally impossible based on the time of year, according to history, for there to have been a solar eclipse. So there's no explanation for three hours of daytime darkness. It's just scientifically impossible. Until I was working in college, and there was another guy that I was talking to this about, and I talked to him about the idea of the impossibility of a solar eclipse, and he said, oh, I never thought there was a solar eclipse, obviously. Um, (laughs) And he went through about new moon, and I was like, wow, he already knows some of that stuff, so I'm not impressing him at all. And he said, I think it was a, a sandstorm. He said, I think it was just a sandstorm where there's literal darkness for days, and that happened often. So that caused me to do a little bit more investigating. And um, again, I will say, Passover happens during a, uh, a specific time of year, and it has all throughout time. And it's key because, obviously, from Passover taking place and being connected, connected to when Jesus dies, we can look back and say, during Passover, it happens during what's called the wet season. And also we can look back in history and we can look at the decade around when Jesus died historically because no one argues whether or not a person named Jesus died. They argue whether or not he was in fact the son of God. So you can look at history and say, this prophet, this person that walked the earth died during this window and maybe people could say, well, it's a couple years this way or a couple years that way. Well, for a decade following uh, on either side of where Jesus was believed to be crucified, History tells us that there is no record of any droughts during that time, nor would it be typical that there would ever be a drought during the wet season. So, all of those things to say this. 
supernatural darkness takes place. Not only physical darkness, but get this, spiritual darkness. It's echoing the Old Testament. It's echoing when darkness covered the earth. It's echoing the the formless and voidness reality of Genesis, this idea that there is darkness that's hovering the earth that, that had to be incredibly scary and very disorienting for all of the people present. There were no generators, right? There's no glow from lights off in the distance that we benefit from now in society. When a section of, of lights go out, you can still kind of see lights in the distance or you hear the generators kick on from neighbors. There was no, you might say, well, there were probably fires or something, but this is midday. So there was no reason for there to be a fire in midday. And also history tells us that where he was crucified, there was actually limited access to wood in general, which is why they reused the actual crosses that they were crucified on. So there's no midday fire or anything. There's just darkness. Darkness. When I was um, a kid, there were moments when we would lose power. I was raised, uh, grew up in a, an old farmhouse, turn of the century farmhouse. And so when the power went out, it was like, boom, like can't see your hand in front of your face dark. I remember one time in particular, my sister Valerie uh, and my younger sister Jenny, we were home, the three of us, uh, we were home alone. My parents were out on a date, date night. And so my older sister is upstairs because her room was upstairs and we were downstairs. Jenny was in the kitchen and I was in the living room. Um, And all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, the power just goes out. Now, unbeknownst to us, something critical was taking place just as the power kicked out. Valerie was coming down the stairs and now you come down the stairs a million times in a house that you live in. You just don't use the railing anymore because it's like, this is stairs, you know? So she's like a couple steps down the stairs and all of a sudden the power just goes out and all of a sudden we hear Valerie, boom, 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 ow, 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 thud, 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 and then just boom onto the dining room floor. And so me and Jenny just come running through the darkness because she's screaming and crying, you know, like, ah, and now she's my older sister. So if she's crying, like something is really hurt. And you can only imagine the sound of someone tumbling down the stairs. It was hilarious. So Uh, I hear her screaming and crying. So we go running. And as we run into the dining room, her from the kitchen and me from the living room, me and Jenny run into each other. We smash right into each other. And all of a sudden, Jenny starts screaming, I just hit a wall. I'm like, that was me, you idiot. And so we're like screaming and yelling and there's tears. And all of a sudden, the lights brilliantly go on. And it just reveals this absolute chaotic moment where I'm holding my head. Jenny's like angry at me. You're such an idiot. She's laying on the ground. Valerie's between us and she's doing that writhing like, you know, butt grab where when your tailbone's just taking it too many times. But she's also doing the I'm going to throw up thing. You know, if you've ever really hit your tailbone where you're kind of like, you know, so she's like, you know, kind of crying and stuff. And she's just squirming around on the floor. And we're like, are you okay? She's like, ah. And we're all laughing at each other, like laugh, crying, horrified. The point is this, when the lights go out, when there's darkness, it's disorienting, even to that which is familiar, even to what it is that we think we know. Darkness disrupts. In the darkness, we can't see what's obvious. She could go down those stairs a million times with the light on. She's been up and down those stairs so many times. We've, we, I don't know how many times me and Jenny went through the dining room without ever coming in contact with each other, both before and after. 
Yet in the moment, in darkness, we can't see what's obvious. We're blinded. We're blinded. Darkness is disorienting. And so at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out in the midst of physical and spiritual darkness. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, this Greek word forsaken actually means abandoned. So Jesus is saying, my God, my God, or Father, Father, depending on which of the gospels you're reading, he's declaring an intimate way of communication with God and saying, why is it that you've abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? So Jesus is rejected. He's betrayed by his friends. He's a victim of injustice, the worst, the worst trial in history. He's tortured. And then we know that the way people die on a cross is through literal suffocation. Suffocation, right? Yeah, why does that sound so wrong to me? (laughs) He suffocated. And so literally what has to happen is he has to pull himself up for every breath, pulling on the nails that are keeping him in place on this cross. His skin is torn off, his muscle and bones exposed, even some of his organs, based on last week's explanation of the beating that he has endured. It is one of the most gruesome things you can imagine, and yet he has to force himself upward on these nails in order to just take a breath, and slowly his lungs are filling with blood. He is drowning in his own blood. And he's dying on a cross for your sin and for mine. That's why he was abandoned by God because sin separates us from God. And he was taking the cup of wrath for you and me. Something else happens with huge implications in the text right here. Verse 37 through 38 says this, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from top to bottom. Now, Historian Josephus talks about the actual thickness of um, this veil, this, this uh, veil is the best way, this curtain that existed in the temple. I'll talk briefly about it. I've spoken about it in the past. But Josephus actually says that it was over four inches thick and that horses tied to each side could not pull it apart based on the way that it was constructed. Scripture and history records that this veil in the temple was 60 feet high. 30 feet wide and four inches thick. So this curtain was much more like a wall than it was a veil. (laughs) And it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now, without going into too much detail, the temple was a place that you had to go through process in order to get to what is called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where God's presence would come and rest on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. It was placed behind this veil and no one could go in there. No one could go where God's presence would come to rest because he would strike them dead. The sin within us could not be in proximity to God. Sin separates us from God. But one time a year, one time a year, the holiest man, after going through an extensive cleansing process that I've actually explained at other times, but an extensive and even on some level gruesome cleansing process that would involve uh, the sacrifice of animals, and the the purification of innocent blood for the sins that had been committed. The holiest man, the high priest, on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, would go into the Holy of Holies. 
And even this man, after going through a cleansing process and all of the things required of him to be able to enter into the presence of God, they would still tie a rope to his ankle. They'd tie a rope to his ankle with a small bell on it. And the reason they would do that is so that when they pulled on the rope, he could pull back and ring the bell, and they knew that he hadn't, in fact, been struck dead by the presence of God. So it was that type of a process. So that if he, in fact, was struck dead because of sin or because of a cleansing process that had been done wrong, that he would actually be able to have his body pulled out from the Holy of Holies. He would go in one time a year to present a blood atonement for the sins of the nation. And this wall-like veil, this curtain that I just talked about, was torn from the top to the bottom. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That Jesus died a death that wasn't just for our sins, it was for the sins of all mankind, that he brought an end, that he, his death, was the atoning sacrifice. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That because of the person and work of Jesus, now anyone can have access to God. The veil has been torn into. God's presence is now available to every single one of us as a result of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. We can all have access to God. The barrier is gone. It seems too good to be true, right? Especially for those that were there, I can imagine they were saying, wait, all of this sacrificial system and this entire idea of the law and atonement, could it possibly be fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus? Too good to be true, except it's immediately proven. It's immediately proven in verse 39. And you might miss it if you don't realize what's taking place. Verse 39, it says this, And when the centurion who stood facing him, meaning Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now listen, this is a huge moment. It's a huge moment because the first man to get it, the first man to get it, to go from spiritual blindness to sight, from spiritual blindness to sight, from the disorientation of darkness to the clarity of light, following Jesus' death is not a wealthy person, it's not an educated person, it's not even a Jewish person. It's a Roman, a pagan. He just participated, not witnessed, he just participated in Jesus' humiliation, his beating, his whipping, and ultimately his death. He just participated in the mocking. And yet, he looks and says, he was the son of God. This man was the son of God. As a Roman, and definitely as a centurion, there was only one God. And you had to declare it unapologetically. That one God was Caesar. That was it. It was, on their co- it was on their coins and everything. And to say anything less as a Roman was to commit some serious, serious crimes, one that would cost them their lives. This declaration is incredible, and it had consequences. For him to declare it loud enough for it to be recorded in Scripture means that those that were around heard a Roman centurion say this man was the Son of God. Centurions, as I already mentioned, were pagan. They didn't believe in a God besides Caesar. 
And centurions were brutal men. They were brutal men. History tells us that. It wasn't like, oh, he's the nicest centurion in all the land. No, they were brutal. They were absolute brutal men that earned their role as the highest rank of an enlisted Roman soldier. So this is not a position that he got because of the legacy of his family or because of the ability for him to throw some money around. No, this is a guy who worked through the ranks. It was the highest rank that could be achieved by a Roman soldier. So he had seen many die. He had seen many die. In fact, he had seen many by his own hand die. History tells us that. Centurions were killers. So why was this different? How was Jesus' death different to the point where it would cause this person that has absolutely everything to lose by this declaration that he unapologetically says, this man was the son of God? How was it different? Others died next to Jesus, right? There were others crucified next to Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, truly, these three might have been important. No, he was the son of God. What was different about Jesus' death? Well, it says in scripture that he saw the way he breathed his last. He saw the way he breathed his last and then declared this man was the son of God. Jesus articulated intimacy with God in what he said. As he yelled out, he screamed out an intimate way of communicating with God and then obeyed into death. The centurion knew he was innocent. I mean, Pilate knew he was innocent. This isn't like a big secret. Everyone there realized, like, we don't know why we're crucifying this guy. And so he has a front row seat to the truth of the gospel being played out right in front of him. He has no scripture knowledge. He has nothing that he's carrying into. He has no baggage or preconceived ideas. He's completely a pagan just with a front row seat. And in that moment, this man finally saw what had been obvious all along. Listen. The cross disrupts the narratives of our lives. It removes the blindness of our self-centeredness. Think about that for a second. The cross disrupts the narratives of our lives and removes the blindness of our self-centeredness. Not just the pagan life. Like it's not like, oh, the gospel, it's super important if you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then then you definitely, you need to, to hear about the cross. It's not just the pagan life that's disrupted. No, the religious life is disrupted as well. Verse 43 says something equally profound with equal implications or, yeah, implications. Wow, I'm struggling to talk. Verse 43 says, Jesus, uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Joseph of Arimathea, it says, was a respected member of the council. Sorry about that. I just hit the antenna. Sorry. He was a respected member of the council. So what does that mean? The council is the group of people that just sentenced Jesus to die and encouraged Pilate to crucify him. So that means Joseph of Arimathea, who was respected, his voice mattered, sat silent during the council's decision to kill Jesus. Silent. 
It doesn't say anywhere in text that as the council gathered together, there were those that said, no, don't, don't kill Jesus. He was silent during the council's decision to kill Jesus. But now, now he risks everything to align with Jesus after he died. To say, I want his body as a member of the council means I want to care for Jesus. This was something that the closest family members would do, that they would request the body of someone that had died. For a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin, to go and say, I want the body of this convicted criminal, means he was innocent. Means he shouldn't have died this way. He is risking absolutely everything. Why? Why now? He's got everything to lose. At this point in history, he doesn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He doesn't know that. So why is he risking everything? Because the cross disrupts. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Joseph humbles himself. He, does, he doesn't just simply take Jesus' body. He cleans a dead body and prepares it for burial. He takes the body of Jesus that had to have been just gruesomely destroyed. He takes this body and does one of the messiest things that anyone can do. Prepares it for burial. In fact, it was against the law for any Jewish person to have contact with a dead body. If a family member died, then they would have to go through a cleansing process before they would be allowed to interact with society again. So for a member of the Sanhedrin to willingly go in and take the body of a convicted criminal that died the worst possible death and to then have contact with it would mean that he would have to go through a cleansing process. And on top of that, people of his stature just simply did not do this. Even a family member, he would have employed slaves or women, a very secular, a very secular and um, sexist society, to clean the body of even a loved one. So the idea that he would then care for the body of Jesus means he is literally throwing everything aside. The, 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 the cross has literally disrupted his life to the degree in which the pagan is disrupted, the religious man is disrupted as well. And so he gives of his treasure also. He goes and buys a linen and he gets his tomb and says, I'm going to put Jesus in my tomb. It's tremendous fiscal loss. He literally gives of his treasure. Why? Why? Because the text says he himself is also looking for the kingdom of God. And the cross enables him to finally see what was obvious all along. What he hadn't seen just days prior. What he had been searching for, he found at the cross. Hear this. A you-centered life is a two-sided coin. On one side is the pagan and on the other side is the religious. The pagan breaks all the rules. Why? Because it's about what you want. <laughs> because I deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve to just do whatever it is that I want. And so on the pagan side of this coin, you break all the rules and live for today. Why? Because, man, it's awesome. If I want it, I do it. And on the other side of the same dirty little coin is the religious person who says, oh, I follow all the rules. I follow all the rules because it's about what I want because I've earned it. 
I've earned it through my behavior, through my keeping of all the rules. And so therefore, on both sides of this dirty little coin, you're declaring the same thing. I've earned it. I deserve it. This is about me. I want to tell you both of the lives, the pagan and the religious, live their lives in disorienting darkness, trying to get what they want, searching, searching, living in the darkness. Maybe from an onlooker, it's almost laughable, but the devastation, and there's nothing funny about it. It's two sides of the same coin, but a gospel-centered life, a gospel-centered life, not some religiosity and and not pagan living, a gospel-centered life, a life that is disrupted daily by the truth of the gospel, looks to the cross and declares, I may not like or even understand why I'm going through what I'm going through, but because of the cross, I know that I know it's not because God doesn't love me. It's not because that I don't have access to God. No, because of the cross, because Jesus was betrayed and abandoned in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of the pain, with tears maybe streaming down my cheeks, I know that I'll never be betrayed and I'll never be abandoned by God. He's going to walk with me and he's going to keep me. Jesus will never never leave or forsake us. The gospel allows us to say, I was blind but now I see. You don't have to earn relationship with God. Jesus did that for you and for me. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can have direct access to God. God is within walking distance. He's within walking distance. And so are you missing what's obvious? Are you missing, are you so wrapped up in the cares and the worries of this world that you're missing out on this this meta-narrative that is the story of your life and the intersection of the truth of the gospel that's literally trying to disrupt it at every turn, but you're so focused, you're so focused on that tunnel vision of what you want that you're missing what's right in front of you. God's within walking distance. We can have access to God. We always say that the text requires something of us. Today, I want to ask you a question. What do you need to bring directly to the Lord this week? What do you need to bring directly to the Lord? If you have direct access to God, what is it that you need to bring directly to the Lord this week? If you would, just bow your heads with me. And uh, that's just so you're not distracted as the worship team makes their way up. You can close your eyes if you want, if you're easily distracted, but if you just look at the floor and focus on what it is that maybe you need to bring directly to the Lord this week. For some of you here today, what you need to bring to the Lord is your life. For all accounts, you identify with the pagan. So listen, I'm living life for myself and I'm missing out on what it is that God is trying to do in and through me. I've tried to fill the God-shaped hole in my life with all of the things, and every time it's just, it's just a race I'm running where I never get ahead. And if that's you, you can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. It's no special words that need to be spoken or anything like that, just a prayer. A prayer acknowledging what it is that Jesus did for you on the cross. And so whether you're here live or watching later, listening later, wherever you find yourself, you can pray this prayer, something like it. Something that just acknowledges, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I've been living my life for myself. 
It's all about me and what I want and what I think I deserve. And I just run after stuff and things. And Lord, I, I need you to come and be the leader of my life. And so just a prayer that acknowledges that you're a sinner. But Jesus, you died the sin. You died for my sin. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. That's it. That's how you begin a relationship. It's just acknowledging the sacrifice of all sacrifices. If you prayed that prayer or something like it, I'd love to talk to you either following today's gathering or afterwards at the next steps area, Eric would be available to just talk about what's next. If you're watching or listening to this later, you can reach out via email or through our website. We'd love to walk alongside you as you begin a relationship with the Lord or go deeper in it. Now, for others of us in this room, watching or listening, you might say, listen, I've given my life to the Lord, but for me, it's, it's become like religiosity. I sit back and I, I feel like this journey is more about me avoiding hell than it is about me living life to the fullest. And so today, maybe what you need to bring directly to the Lord is, is just a life in line with the gospel. Lord, would you just wreck me? Would you wreck my heart with what wrecks yours? Father, I want to I give of my time, my talent, and my treasure. Lord, it's all yours. I'm simply a steward. I'm simply a steward of what's yours. And so I live not with my hands clenched, but with my hands open wide. Would you just use me? Would you do whatever it is that you would have done in and through my life? Maybe you need to bring directly to the Lord your availability this week. I don't know specifically what it is, but I know that the text never returns void. And so there's no way that you're outpacing what it is the text requires. And so if you find yourself in a rhythm of, listen, I've given my life to the Lord and I am living open-handedly, then I would ask you, what are you doing about the mission? Are you living on mission? Are you having spiritual conversations? Are you inviting people to have an encounter with the truth of the gospel? Are you waiting and listening to see how it is that the Lord leads you, where it is that you need to act, when to speak, when to be silent, how to love? How to forgive. What do you need to bring directly to the Lord this week? Let's pray together and then we'll respond in worship because he's worthy. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we declare our availability and a desire to have an encounter with you. Lord, would you lead us? Would you direct us? Father, would you allow the reality of the cross to disrupt our everyday. That we wouldn't be so consumed by the worries and cares of this world that we would lose focus. That we'd lose focus on what is so obvious. Lord, we admit our blindness at times. We ask that you'd give us sight. You'd shed your light onto our lives. We worship you, Lord. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you made so that we can have access to God. Let's worship the Lord together. Just stand with us.
everything, God. We bring it all to you today, Jesus.
What a 
about the centurion sometimes we think the centurion means roman soldier but it doesn't centurion was a specific soldier that oversaw a hundred roman soldiers century centurion so this centurion oversaw the crucifixion of jesus which means he was the same centurion that oversaw his whipping the same centurion that walked Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane in his betrayal all the way to his death. And in that moment declares he was the son of God. Talk about regret. <laughs> Talk about like, oh my gosh, the things I would have done different. What I didn't understand, what I didn't know. Joseph of Arimathea, silent in a council. Same counsel that Nicodemus was silent in. We can live our lives regretting and rethinking, or we can walk in the freedom that Jesus provides. And I just, I wanted to tack that on a little bit because I think there's some of us that are just feeling the weight of the lies of the enemy. And I want to tell you the Holy Spirit convicts, but it's the enemy of hell that condemns. And so if you're feeling condemnation today, that's not from the Lord. So let's pray together a prayer of freedom and joy in the reality that we have access to God. If anybody wants prayer or anything, you can feel free to come up. I'd love to pray with you. Or if you want to remain and just be in his presence as the worship team continues to, to sing afterwards, then you can do that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you not because we're perfect, not by a long shot, but because Jesus was perfect because he died the death that we deserve. And so because of that, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would see us as your children because of who he is. And so today we surrender, Lord, and we ask that you would lead us and direct us, that you would show us the areas that we need to have sight in and reveal the areas of darkness, Lord, that you would shed light into every area of our life. We surrender to you today and we simply declare ourselves available. 
precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Can't wait to see you again next week. If you need prayer for anything, I'd love to talk and pray with you. God bless. There's plenty of uh, bread out there from Panera as well if you want to have some or take some to a needy family for sure.